What's up? It's Sierra, new member and ambassador for WW Weight Watchers Reimagined. Since joining, I feel healthier and more confident than ever. The new MyWW Plus, our most holistic program ever, gives you more of what you need to lose weight, like tools to help boost your mindset, get you moving, and plan meals based on what you have on hand. Plus, over 300 zero-point foods you don't have to track. The new MyWW Plus, more holistic, more personalized, more weight loss. Join today with a limited-time offer at WW.com. We'd like to thank our friends at Sleep Number for sponsoring the Thrive Global Podcast. Sleep Number is changing the way we sleep with their latest beds, the Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds. They automatically adjust on each side to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast on iHeartRadio. I love when you hit a certain level of stratospheric stardom and you are just known by one name. Our guest today has reached just such a level and she's known as Giselle. She has, of course, had a spectacular modeling career, but way beyond that, she's an environmentalist, she's a UN Goodwill ambassador, she's a teacher a natural teacher, and now with the publication of her book, Lessons, My Path to a Meaningful Life, she's also a best-selling author. In her book, she tells the rest of her story, revealing for the first time the lessons she learned about well-being, about mental health, about family, and about what really constitutes success and thriving in our modern world. And some of those lessons come from her marriage to Tom Brady, some from being a mother to their children, some from her early life in Brazil. Giselle, thank you so much for being here. It's so great to be with you. Thank you. And to share your wisdom with everybody listening and watching. So I love your book. Thank you. I love the titles of the chapters. They are like affirmations or meditations that you Mm -hmm. can repeat to yourself every morning. Challenges are opportunities in disguise. Yes. The quality of your life depends on the quality of your relationships. Where your attention goes is what grows. Mm -hmm. I just particularly love that because so often our attention is scattered. And and we don't understand that we are actually co-creating our reality based on because what we feel is what we tend to give energy to. So we create more of that, which we give energy to. And I always tell my children, you know, that actually is a saying I always tell them. I say, remember where your attention goes is what grows. You know, it's just reminding us that where do we choose to put our attention means our energy, our focus becomes bigger. It becomes what we create. So we have to just be mindful of that. I know, and so, so often somehow... Our attention and our thoughts go to the negative. It mm. has some evolutionary reason. Apparently, people wouldn't survive in the hunter-gatherer times if they were looking at the sunset rather than looking at the lion chasing them. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think if you were, if there was a lion around, I think I'd be paying attention. But now, somehow, yeah. even when there is no lion around, maybe we tend to move into these negative fantasies. We get feed a lot more of that also all around us, you know, in the in the media and all of that stuff. I think 
usually that captures the attention more. I always say there's plenty of wonderful people in the world and there's plenty of wonderful things happening, but somehow the more negative news is what tends to be... Um, to get the attention. Yeah, to, the to get shared. But I think it's so important for us to really be mindful of the power that we all have to co-create our reality. Everything is vibration. You know, love is a very high vibration. When you start being loving with yourself, being loving with others, you know, feeding your, your, your mind with affirmations and loving thoughts, you create more of that in your life and that becomes more of your reality. And if you do the opposite is also what would happen. I always say, you know, the universe doesn't understand better good. It just understands vibration. So, you know, if you tend to focus more on the negative, then that's what it has to bring back to you because that's what he yeah, understands yeah. that you want, you know? So if you want to change that reality, then you have to change your thoughts and you have to do your best to be mindful and be aware of when your thoughts are going that direction and take a moment to observe yourself. That's why meditation is so important because you get to observe yourself and see when you're falling into that vibration and you can bring yourself back to things that actually are constructive and are going to help you co-create the reality that you want. And when was it that you actually came to believe and to know and to practice that? You know, I think when I started meditating in my early 20s, you know, after having severe panic attacks, and that's one of the very important tools that helped me. He actually g gave me a new life, you know, so I always say it's kind of funny. That's why challenges, you know, our opportunities in disguise. I always say it's funny because when we go back to our life and we connect the dots, we can see how all those things that happen to us there usually are the most challenging times you know how they brought so much um, awareness and a different kind of perspective that before wasn't there you know when you reach rock bottom you know there's nowhere you can you have to figure out a way to get out of there and I think he gave me a new life and he gave me an opportunity to become aware of a new world that I didn't know existed which was a world within myself and and understanding that there was a place that no one could take away that it was my own personal sacred space that existed within myself and all I needed to do was quiet my mind and go inward and, and connect to that. And, and from that, I, I felt so much strength and just became so much more aware of so many things in my life. From that point on is when I start realizing, okay, what am I creating here? You know, what kind of life do I want to live? Well, the things I'm doing are not really the actions or the thoughts that are going to create the life that I want. So there's a shift needs to happen. And with awareness, everything is possible. You know, the problem is that sometimes we get in the hamster wheel and we're just going, going, and we've all, and if we do always what we've always done, we're only going to get what we've always gotten, right? So if you're able to just slow down and take the moment to go inward and notice and become aware, then when you're not in meditation, you can become aware mm -hmm. and present every moment. That can help you really see where you're letting your attention goes. And if that's really the place where you want your attention to be, therefore you're going to be creating as a your reality. And then it became a practice, an everyday practice. And then you, you've said many times that nobody can live there all the time. Mm -mm. Although this is an amazing sacred space we all have in us, but it has helped you course correct faster, right? Become more aware when you're not in that place. Yeah, because before my panic attacks, I actually had no idea that that existed, that I, that I actually had that choice. So when I discovered that space, 
it, it not only helped me heal, but it, it gave me a new perspective and it gave me like a very powerful tool that I knew that it was always there. And then all I needed to do was tap in. And, mm -hmm. and the more I practiced, the more time I spent there, the, the easier it became when I wasn't meditating, the easier it became for me to just notice things. You're living your life, but you're also observing yourself as you're living. So it, it helps you make more choices in a more, I would say, more conscious and more grounded way. And, and you know, instead of just kind of towards the reactiveness of things, you know, of life, if you're going in such a fast speed, you tend to react more than actually sit and really make a conscious decision what you think is the best way to act on that certain situation. You're just reactive, and then sometimes that's not the best outcome. It doesn't bring you exactly what you want. It actually sometimes can bring you the opposite. So the more aware we can be f from each action that we, we make, I think it just brings more joy, and we're going to be more happy because we're coming from a place of being in our center versus being pulled in so many directions and or because we're trying to please someone or because there's so many motives why we're making decisions. But the, the more centered we can be, uh, I think the better is for us and for everyone, I, I think. <laughs> so for people yeah. watching or listening who want to tap into that reality that's in all of us, mm -hmm. how did you start? Because at Thrive, we talk about micro steps. You know, you've said in your book that everything starts with a dream. Yeah. But then it's a series of small steps yes. that lead you to a new reality. Mm -hmm. So if you go back, you know, 15 years ago when you wanted to deal with the panic attacks and you started taking some of these micro steps mm -hmm. that got you to where you are now, mm -hmm. can you tell us some of these micro steps? I actually started my book with Everything Starts With Discipline because I think that's a very important thing. I think sometimes people tend to reject discipline and say no, but I actually think that discipline is a very important tool that helps you follow through and keeps you at it, you know, even when it gets tough or you're tired or, you know, it keeps you at it. And the more you do something, the better you, you are at it. So I mean, discipline plus a dream. It's the discipline to stay with it because some days will be harder than others to stay with it. I remember sitting in meditation and um, I wanted to stop what I was feeling and, and I knew that I needed to put the work in and, I, you know, it's like if you written a bike only one time you're not gonna you know you're gonna fall a few times but if you keep at it you can ride a bike and you won't even know it becomes an automatic thing you don't even know how you learn how to ride a bike it's a natural thing and that's the same thing for anything in our life right the more we do it the better we become at it and in the beginning it's never easy you fall a few times off the bike the same thing with meditation you don't understand like for me it was kind of like okay there's a lot of stuff in my mind it doesn't stop it's like the monkey mind where you're closing your eyes and there's so much chatter that it's hard to stay there because it's, it's just one thought after the other. And, but as you sit with it and as you, you know, just compassionate with yourself and give yourself the time, little by little, the chatter becomes less and less and less to a point that is like the reward of staying with it is the gift of peace. When you actually go in there after you've practiced so long, you, you understand why it's such a gift, meditation. You know, you just have to have the discipline to stick with it. And the more you do it, the, just the, the more amazing it gets. <laughs> That's my experience. And for you, it's mostly a morning practice, yes? For me, it's a morning practice. I would take at least once a year, like seven days of silence and, and, uh, and just immerse in it and really work through whatever needed to be worked through so I could feel the peace that I was looking for. 
And um, now, you know, I'm 38. I have lots more responsibility. My time is divided in a lot of different things. I like to say put the oxygen mask on you first because if you don't have anything to give, you can give from a cup that's empty. So I wake up every day at 5.30 in the morning and I do usually between 10, 5. I mean, it just depends. I'm not very rigid with myself because I know that that doesn't really serve me. I wake up, I sit in silence, I light a candle and I meditate. And sometimes if I have a very important meeting or something that I feel like I'm going to be around a lot of energy and I'm very sensitive to energy, it's really helpful if I just take a few moments to be quiet for five, 10 minutes and take a few deep breaths and just go into that space. And, and then when I come out of it, I just feel revitalized and ready to tackle so much more. And all it takes is five minutes, mm -hmm. you know? I almost see it as like taking a breath. It's like taking a deep breath from your belly and just kind of bringing yourself back in, like, like getting yourself to your space of power, your space of center, your space of being the best version of yourself that you can be. I, I, I consider meditation that space. So it's important for me to do it every day because it's like, it's as important as the air I breathe. I feel. And have you taught your children? You know, Benny, <laughs> my, my eight-year-old, he's been a very natural since he's little. When it's summer and it's nice outside, I actually like to sit outside and meditate. Just because I like being in nature, it just has a very, nature is the most incredible. It's like my temple, you know, and, and it, It's almost like a healing space for me. It gives me so much energy. It's like I'm getting healed by nature somehow. I, that's how I feel. Vivish is five and it's more about like, you know, just remember to breathe. You know, I always like, let's put the hand on the belly. Let's take a few deep breaths. She needs to go back to her breath and that will bring her to her center. And have you taught so, your husband? You know, he has meditated, but I don't think he's as diligent um, as I am uh, with meditation. You know, I think for me came from something that has helped me heal from something that was so challenging in my life that I have such a strong connection to it because I know how powerful it is, uh, the practice. And maybe because he doesn't, he hasn't had the same need as me. Maybe he hasn't, for him, hasn't become something so consistent, but he has meditated. Yes. But he has said that you don't allow phones in the bedroom. And not in the, in the table either. In Which the, I like, love. Mm. So when did that happen? When did you decide to set boundaries to your relationship, to your phone? You know, I think technology can be a great thing if you are the captain of it. It doesn't control your life. I remember being a child and I have five sisters and being in Brazil and every lunch, my parents would come back home from work, you know, after we finished school and we have lunch together. And then every dinner we had together. And it was the best time, you know, to sit around the table and talk about what we experienced at school, what happened. And it was really such a sacred time for all of us. And this is why even when we go to restaurants, I bring like coloring books and they, we can talk or they can color. You know, I just feel like I want to connect with my children and my family. So I said, you know, I don't want any distractions from that. That's a special moment for us to connect and, and share and, and, and learn about how everyone is doing. And I think the same thing, the bedroom is like, I don't want to be sitting in bed with an electronic. <laughs> and, like I want to be having a conversation with my husband after I put the kids to bed. And, you know, and sometimes it can consume you and I don't want to live my life that way. So we just have this rule that we don't have phones on the table and we don't have phones in the bed. You know, we just, in this really do our best exchange of energy and of what you've learned, what I've learned. And, you know, we grow so much in this connection and I don't want to lose that. And it's such an amazing lesson 
because the children absorb it from you and even monkey see monkey does right (laughs) and it's not just what you say it's what you're doing and now i recently had the chance to sit down with pete bills the vice president of sleep science and research for sleep number we spoke about the connection between sleep and relationships what should couples that have different sleep schedules need to do if they are going to be able to be together, sleep in the same bed, and get a good night's sleep, and especially if one of them snores. What do you recommend? (laughs) Let's start with that one. Uh, uh, Nearly one in four, about 23% of U.S. couples sleep apart regularly because of incompatibilities like that. Snoring, uh, they prefer different temperatures, prefer different bed firmnesses or pillows, or they steal the blankets, you name it, the problem's there. The, the key for couples is to identify those and then try to figure out a way to uh, address those. For instance, if someone likes to read in bed or watch TV, the other one doesn't, then sleep timers on the TV, dimmer lights, uh, a reader instead of uh, a book with a bright light. Fascinating stuff, right? Stick around until the end of this episode to hear my full interview with Pete. He always has the scoop on the latest sleep science. This sleep tip was brought to you by Sleep Number, the bed that knows you, senses you, and adjusts to you. Only at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. I love the, the title you chose for your book, and I want to know what made you choose it. Lessons, my path to a meaningful life. You know, because I think life is such a gift and we can live it, you know, if we live it with awareness, it can be so magical. And I think I want to make every moment in my life mean something like, you know, everything is special. Like I don't get the time back. Like what happened like yesterday, it's, it's, it's done. And, and, uh, you know, I, I said also, you know, you take your first breath alone and your last breath alone and what you choose to do in between, it's, it's a choice, you know, and I want to choose I want to get to a, the end of my life, hopefully at 90, 100, you know, feeling healthy and feeling good. When I look back and say, wow, I live my life to the fullest. I live my life with love. I live my life with intention. With a, I was fully present at every moment and I've experienced everything to the maximum. Like I make it, I made it count. I made being alive count, you know, like so, so I, I, it's very important to me. It's such a gift to be alive and to have every day, you know, it's not guaranteed for anybody. So I just want to make sure that I live it in the most present way and enjoying every moment that I can. And part of that... And this is why meaningful life, because it's about meaning. It's about living your life with purpose, with meaning. And it was lessons because it was like, you know, what are the lessons that kind of, in a way, have, that I've learned that have guided me in my life in a way that is something that I always is there for me to remember. Like you said, affirmations and the quality of my life does depend on the quality of my relationships. We don't live alone. You know, we have these relationships and we are constantly exchanging. And that's what makes our life so rich to have these beautiful relationships based on love and trust on companionship. And uh, there are so many lessons in the book. I love, you know, the time when you recognize that things, as you put it, can look perfect on the outside, but you have no idea what's really going on. The most important thing I wanted everyone to take from the book is like, live your life with love, you know, love yourself, loving others, loving the planet we live in. And if we're not compassionate with ourselves, we cannot be compassionate Mm -hmm. towards others. If we're not loving towards ourselves, we can be loving towards others. Everything starts with ourselves. 
And I feel like sometimes, you know, we're living in a world that is so fast-paced and everyone is so overloaded and everyone is so stressed and everybody's feeling like they are pulled in so many different directions. And, and sometimes that shows up in a very not kind way in the way dealing with people, even dealing with ourselves. And I think it's so important to remember that we are all human beings. We're all here learning. We all have feelings, no matter who we are, no matter how successful. But the thing is, we are all the same and we are all trying to figure out as we go along. Nobody's here because we know everything. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. So we are all learning. And I think it's important for us to be more compassionate with ourselves and with others because Life is hard as it is, you know? I think it would be nicer if we could be more loving and kind to ourselves and to others. It would be a much better life. These are all very spiritual messages. Would you describe yourself as a spiritual person? You know, definitely spirituality is a very big, um, has a very important role in my life. You know, I left home at 14 years old. And because I didn't finish, you know, I didn't finish high school. I started working. I moved to Japan at 14. I moved to New York at 16. I didn't have teachers telling me, read this book, read that book. So I was like, hey, I can read whatever I want. <laughs> so I started, you know, I was always very curious about, you know, who am I? Why am I here? So I start reading, you know, Bhagavad Gita and the, and the Tao. You know, I wanted to understand about Buddhism and about Kabbalah. You know, and I just started learning about different things at a very young age. And then I travel around the world. It almost kind of like my mind just went boom. It's like what I said in the book, you know, it's like the frog in the well, you know, he's in the well saying, oh, I know everything there is to know about the sky. I know every star, I know every, but then he decides, he's curious one day and he decides to jump off the well. And then he realizes that there's so much more that he has no idea that his mind just goes like, wow, what's this? And that's kind of how I felt when I left my town at 14. I was like, whoa, like what's all this, you know, and then all these books. And I realized that in the end of the day, it's, it's, there's so many different philosophies. I believe that this is why I say love is my religion, because love is the only thing that is across the board. The truth is the only truth is the only guiding light in my life. And that when we are not in that energy and then we forget that, then we don't feel so good. And know? that must have been there in you from the beginning, because... In your life, it's hard, it was hard to believe and to remember that when you were 16, you actually got 42 casting rejections. <laughs> I, I was kind of used to rejections at that point. But it's so interesting. <laughs> I, I love kind of re reminding people that what often looks like an overnight success had a lot of challenges along the way. Yes. So as you were going through these 42 casting rejections, I, you are a little bit ahead of me because my second book was rejected by 36 publishers. So you're a little bit ahead of me on the <laughs> I had rejection some more rejections. front. Okay. Yes, you had a so few you more understand. rejections. Yes. But what kept you going until you were booked for the McQueen show? I just wanted to make my parents proud and I felt like I had a responsibility to make it. And I just felt if I just kept at it and I didn't give up somehow, something inside me just, I don't know, I just had this... Mm -hmm this trust and this, and this desire to, to succeed and, and to not give up. Too. And Back very disciplined, discipline. yeah. I'm very disciplined for sure. And then it was like my 42 casting and then McQueen saw me and he didn't really care. And he put wigs on everybody and he just wanted to make sure you could walk on these impossible hills. And I remember that that was another test because when I showed up at the show and I didn't speak English very well, it was kind of terrible. 
So I pretended that I spoke English. I was like, yeah, yeah, but I didn't really quite know what they were saying half the time. When I was in the lineup for the show, they put the skirt on me that I had tried. I didn't do a fitting, which you always do a fitting for a show, and it didn't do a fitting for me. But I was so excited I got that show. I was like, maybe they don't do fittings, you know. I just showed up at the, at the job. And then when, when I went to go in my second time, I put the skirt on, and there was no top. And I was standing there like, there was no top in my rack. So I was supposed to go with nothing, right? And I was 17 years old at the time. I was started crying because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should leave, if I should stay, but I felt like that was the only show I got out of 42 castings. And I thought like, if I leave, maybe they'll never book me again because I was irresponsible and left the job, you know? But at the same time, I felt completely like vulnerable and like scared and I didn't know. So the sweet makeup artist, Val, she came in and she really quickly painted with white paint uh, in my in my body. So I looked like I had a, a top, but I was crying and thank God is so good. Look at this this thing. What are the probabilities that is going to be rain in a show? So I had this fake black lashes and, and, and my makeup was completely melted because I was crying. So I had like black coming down my face. But when I went out in the in the runway, it was raining. It was the rain show. I don't oh, know if it was in the rain. Yes. So no one knew I was crying. Oh. Can you imagine how lucky I was? So, I mean, I was lucky for so many reasons. The guardian angels show up in so many different ways, you know? And, and literally she was there. She quickly thought about this makeup idea. And then I went out and it was raining. So no one ever knew. Yeah. It was 1998, my show, my first international show season. And it was the time on the end of the 90s. There was a uh, herring chic look. So I guess I was in the right place at the right time because after that became the return of the curve. <laughs> and then, you know, I end up, being in that year on the cover of American Vogue with the return of the curve. And that really kind of helped my career enormously. I was just so happy that there was no internet at that time. And my parents didn't <laughs> see me. <laughs> they would have been, come back home. What are you doing walking around naked? and around? But what is amazing is that despite the fact that you've had this phenomenal modeling career, you have said that you actually never became a model. You did modeling. Yeah, that you it was never a job. identified with that. Yeah, and you know, and from the very beginning, I always saw myself as this country small town girl that, you know, love her family and just I'm very simple, you know, I'm a very simple girl. And for me, that life was not very much who I was, you know, everything that came with that life, you know, and the attention and all that and I just kind of felt like it wasn't me. And I start disassociating. I said, okay, this is her. This is Giselle. And this is Gizzy. This is me. I just saw myself as a Giselle, the model. And she was a white canvas where the designer, the photographer, the, you know, the creatives could project, you know, okay, they could decide who she was going to be that day. She was going to be alluring. She was going to be sexy. She was going to be androgynous. She was going to be, what was she going to be? And then when they spoke of me in front of me, and whatever they said wasn't really affecting me. It's really not taking things personal. And that was a big thing that I also, for my whole life, that, that served me. But it really helped me understood that at that moment when I was in the studio, I was a, a white canvas and my job to model was the collaboration between all those different creative people that wanted to create an image. And that's what I was. But in the, in the end, when I left and I took off the makeup and the hair, I was me again. I felt like it was just my job. Like a doctor goes in and does surgery and operates some people. He goes home and he's the mom or the father. You know what I mean? I think it was that's like a that. great lesson for all of us because the more we totally identify with our job, 
the more we are at the mercy of what somebody said or how somebody responded to a cover or something we wrote. So it's just a great lesson that we are not our jobs, however magnificent and glamorous and successful. I've always been the kind of person who never liked to be in a box. Even when I had the opportunity to leave home at 14 and to study whatever I wanted, I wanted to study so many different things. And I feel like, you know, any time that you become so defined by a title or something, and then you can become enslaved by it, and that can put you in a box and that you can't get out, right? Because if you have to be those things, mean you're not the other things. We are not just one thing. And to be in that box never felt comfortable to me. So I, I, I wanted just to be free to be who I am, you know, not why people projected onto me based on what their ideas of me was because most of the time what people think of us is not have nothing mm-hmm. to do with us anyway but it's mostly to do with how they feel about themselves and they're just projecting that onto us so if we allow that to become our truth and then we have to live up to those ideals I'm, I don't want to do that <laughs> and you've been able not to do it and what is also remarkable is that um, your marriage to Tom you've been able to make it work you know two high profile people Do you have a secret that others can learn from? You know, I don't know there's a secret. I think it's important to honor each other for who we are and to not try to change the other, just to fully accept each other. And I think it's important to always keep the communication also loving and respectful and current. You know, like I'm not going to talk about something that happened like, oh, you know, a year ago you did that. Like, I let it go. It happens. We address it. If something happens right now, we address it and then we let it go. Because I think with acceptance comes freedom. Actually, keeping it current is a secret. Keeping it current is... Because, you know, so many of us just carry negative emotions, resentments... But imagine... From the past. But imagine walking... It's like walking your life with, like, heavy rocks in your pockets. I want to be light. I want to fly. I don't want to be, like, carried down, you know? And it's like... And that's not something that is even present right now. And then we, we bring back that pain. And in a way, this book was very interesting because, you know, it actually f- made me look back. So I brought up all those different situations I've lived in my life and those different experiences. And I felt again the pain and I was able to heal a lot of it and to also understand things from a different perspective because it's different what you know at 38 than what you know at 14 or what you know in your 20s, you know. I can look at myself in a way that um, I can be more compassionate with myself. And I see, you know, when I was at your home and I visited your sanctuary, Mm -hmm. the special space where you work and which is your domain, (laughs) it was so interesting to see how current that felt. It felt like there was no clutter. No. There was sort of a lot of accumulation of things. Is that the kind of environment that makes you be more present and more productive? You know, I think so for sure what's out is in and what's in is out. So if you have a cluttered environment that is messy, I mean, for me, quite frankly, I can't even think in a messy or cluttered environment. I like only the necessary. And I like things to be very clean and neat and organized because I think energetically the energy can flow and therefore my energy can flow and I can be more creative. If you have a clear space, a clean, organized space helps your mind to be that way as well so that means you're not a hoarder no way i'm the opposite (laughs) of a hoarder everything is energy so when you can keep the energy flowing then it's not stagnant if things are just there and you're hoarding things like that's also happening in your body so you're like holding on to that energy and that's like not letting you move forward so i think it's important to keep clearing 
because then you can keep in that flow. And I really believe in that. So many lessons here. I want to thank you so much for so generously sharing them with the world. I really feel that uh, you're a natural-born teacher and that modeling was just the way for the world to know you so that you can teach all that you came to this world to teach. I'm so happy that you have 20 million followers on social (laughs) media and that so many people can get these messages from your social media, I hope from the book, because that goes into so much depth, and from the way you you live your life. Thank you so much thank for you. being with us, Thank Giselle. you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening, and uh, stay in touch. And big kisses for all the listeners, and a big hug. And a big hug from Giselle. Thank you. Bye, guys. And now I'm excited to share my recent conversation with Pete Bills, the Vice President of Sleep Science and Research for Sleep Number. So if sleep has such a big impact on our mood, it makes sense that it has a big influence on how we deal with others. So how does sleep affect our relationships? And also a question I get asked a lot, what should couples that have different sleep schedules need to do if they are going to be able to be together, sleep in the same bed, and get a good night's sleep, and especially if one of them snores. What do you recommend? (laughs) Let's start with that one. Uh, You know, the Better Sleep Council and the National Sleep Foundation both have reported over the years that uh, nearly one in four, about 23% of U.S. couples sleep apart regularly because of incompatibilities like that. Snoring, uh, they prefer different temperatures, they prefer different bed firmnesses or pillows, or they steal the blankets, you name it, the problem's there. The, the key for couples is to identify those and then compromise or, or try to figure out a way to address those. For instance, if someone likes to read in bed or watch TV, the other one doesn't, then sleep timers on the TV, dimmer lights, uh, a reader instead of uh, a book with a bright light. Um, so Compromise is always great for, for couples. Snoring, uh, that's a tougher one, but uh, earplugs are good. Um, if you can get an adjustable foundation, for instance, with your bed and raise your head slightly, that will help with snoring. And a couple of lifestyle changes, lose a little bit of weight, a little bit less alcohol at night um, will help with the, the snoring advice. But um, th- there are ways to get around those types of things. But you're right. Um, uh, sleep is a an important part of a relationship and sleeping together is important. While that arrangement of sleeping apart may work for some, most relationship experts say it could lead to, to bigger problems. So you, you really want to solve that. But overall, when you're sleeping well, you're a better partner in, in so many different ways. You're more attentive. You're more interesting. Research has shown that when you're tired to your partner, you look less attractive and less healthy and you want to maintain a vibrant relationship, and, and sleep plays a critical role in that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, frankly, I feel that if you are really disturbed by your partner snoring and you wake up miserable and irritable, that can't possibly be good for the relationship. You might be better off sleeping in a separate room and reconnecting, fully recharged and uh, with your love for each other reignited. So um, as you said, Pete, I don't think there is one way to do it. Just remembering that when you wake up recharged, 
everything, including your relationships, are better. There's no question about that. Um, and you're right. Uh, it needs it needs to be looked at individually. You, you need to compromise as a couple always. Uh, I've been married 24 years and have managed uh, very well to still appeal to my wife, and she <laughs> still appeals to me. And it's because of you know great sleep and uh, all of the all of the benefits that that brings. Thank you so much, Pete. Thank you. Thanks again to our friends at Sleep Number for sponsoring the Thrive Global Podcast. So many couples disagree on mattress firmness. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed adjusts to your ideal firmness, comfort and support on each side. So it's just right for both of you. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app and stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on new episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. It's Sierra, new ambassador for WW, Weight Watchers Reimagined. The new MyWW Plus, our most holistic program ever, helps you tackle the many elements that contribute to weight loss, with tools to plan meals and get you moving. Join today with a limited time offer at WW.com. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.